A very interesting story by Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Alicia Hyatt. BHP's tech-inspired startup program closes in on first deals with tiny explorers. And we're going to look at this in the news section. And hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, but I thought... As we start cruising in to PDAC week here, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the premier minerals and mining conference in Toronto, Canada, from March 3rd to 6th, so this Sunday, starting things off, I thought this was quite an interesting story. Because what if I thought, you know, this is a bit of a paradigm shift. And again, we'll take a closer look at this story. But as we've all seen who pay attention to the mining sector, The explorers are under, we might call it severe duress, just as, you know, Ron Birnbaum was mentioning, even the flow through share financing is potentially being strangled here by new federal tax legislation that is being proposed in Canada. As Ron was saying a couple of weeks ago, making a bad situation potentially much worse. And we have been hearing that almost universally from the explorers for at least a couple of years that they hope it turns around, but... It is a crucial part of the whole mining supply chain, you know, producing the metal. We need the explorers. Where will you make the discoveries? And the Northern Miner interviewed Pierre Lassonde and Frank Joustrup after last week's op-ed in the Globe and Mail newspaper. So making the clarion call here, like, where's the money going to come from? If you guys want critical metals, how are we going to do this? You know, Pierre Lassonde saying the pensions need to step up, you know, do what they need to do, and it will pay off, interestingly. But, you know, as we take a step back, like, basically, the market doesn't want anything to do to generalize with these exploration companies. They are starved for capital. Their share prices are through the floor. So, When I see this story that Alicia posted, BHP's tech-inspired startup program closes in on first deals with tiny explorers, well, this seems like a tiny step forward that could represent a paradigm shift, potentially a market solution. Because, of course, you know, the elephant in the room in this whole discussion is China. We seem to be seeing it in the nickel industry. Again, I keep calling it audacious. If you're trying to take over the nickel industry, but it is being flooded. There is a glut coming out of Indonesia, and most of those companies have been backed by Chinese money. So perhaps a proxy of sorts, perhaps accidental, and it just happens to be another market flooded by Chinese interests, and Indonesian as well, we might add. Maybe they want to own the nickel market too. Why not? They seem to have a lot of it. But all to say, what does the rest of the world do? And we have another huge story here. Nickel faces existential moment with half of mines unprofitable. We'll take a look at that story too. So that is the situation here. So if you're a nickel explorer, do you think you're getting a dime from anybody right now? Maybe the Department of Defense. But other than that, I'm not sure how you're going to afford to drill anywhere you think there might be nickel. So all to say, this very interesting story by Alicia Hyatt, as we approach PDAC week here, which is an extravaganza of exploration companies in Toronto, Canada. So that is very interesting. Now onto the world stage here we go. It is earnings season. And of course, BHP reported last week. Now I'm using ChatGPT here. And I'm going to basically go through these four mining companies, BHP, Rio Tinto, Glencore, and Valet, as quickly as I can. BHP, strong performance for Q4 despite economic uncertainties. 
They met production guidance across all commodities and achieved record production in several areas. They have a market cap of $148 billion. They are by far the largest mining company, and they have a dividend yield of 5.3%. Their largest project is the Escondida Mine in Chile, which is considered the world's largest copper mine. They have a significant ownership stake in it. Their second biggest is the Olympic Dam in Australia, and it is one of the world's most significant deposits of copper, gold, silver, and uranium, and it is known for being one of the largest underground mining operations globally. They also have a significant stake in Western Australia's Pilbara region, where there are huge amounts of iron ore, and they have several projects there. And finally, they also have coal interests in Colombia, as well as some energy interests. So we talked about copper last week with, you know, Ivanhoe again producing about 400,000 tons of copper in 2023. Barrick coming in at surprisingly high, I would say 210,000 tons from their project in Zambia, primarily. And so BHP, how much copper are they producing? They're producing 620,000 tons of copper. So about 50% more than Ivanhoe mines, just to take one commodity there by way of illustration. So Rio Tinto also reported earnings, and they actually started with an emphasis on safety. Of course, they had the plane crash there near the Diavik mine in the Northwest Territories, where six people lost their lives. And so Jacob Staussholm, CEO of Rio Tinto, began with that. And as far as their financials, despite a $1.5 billion negative impact from lower commodity prices, they reported robust financials with underlying earnings of $12 billion. They are focused on investment and growth, strategic objectives such as ESG and social license. And as far as their main projects are concerned, again, we are back in the Pilbara region of Australia, iron ore mines, where they have several projects similar to BHP there. There's also Oyutolgoi, their next largest project in Mongolia, also, I believe, discovered by Robert Friedland, if I am not mistaken. And it is one of the largest known copper and gold deposits in the world. And they are in a partnership with the Mongolian government and Turquoise Hill Resources. It is a significant source of copper and gold and silver. There's also the Kennecott Copper Mine in the U.S. near Salt Lake City, Utah. It is one of the largest open pit mines in the world and has been in operation for over 100 years. They also have the Diavik Diamond Mine in Canada, which we mentioned earlier, and they have the Waypad Bauxite Mine in Australia. And of course, don't forget the Samandu Iron Ore Project in Guinea, where they have a significant stake. Now, in terms of copper production, they actually have the same amount of copper produced last year as BHP at 620,000 tons. So, Again, what I guess we would call diversified miners. They mine several different kinds of metals, similar to BHP and copper coming in at 620,000 tons. Now, Glencore is our next earnings report here, and they had a significant reduction in earnings compared to last year. The company's adjusted EBITDA for the year fell to $17 billion from $34 billion. So they are down 50% in EBITDA. And there are several reasons for this, such as the acquisition of tech resources, metallurgical coal business, and debt, which is at around $5 billion, which is, again, similar to Barrick there, and I think Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto's debt is at $4 billion, so it's kind of a normal thing for these companies to have about 4 or $5 billion of debt, but one assumes these decisions were made with interest rates near zero. 
finally here. Interestingly, Glencore is much more focused on copper, even though it has several different projects, including the Katanga mining operation back in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we have a quick update we need to mention on that, where you get copper and cobalt likely in the copper belt there. And there's also the Kolawazi mine in Chile for copper and various coal mines in Australia. Now, interestingly, Glencore is much more heavily positioned in copper. They produce just over a million tons of copper per year. Interesting illustration here. Now, turning to Valet, finally, it also has a market cap of $58 billion, similar to Glencore, a dividend of 9.61%. And as far as the conference call themes that were mentioned, safety once again, they achieved their lowest injury frequency rate since 2008 and made significant progress in dam management, iron ore operation stabilization. So they have increased their iron ore production. There's growth in energy and transition metals and ESG leadership and community reparations, dividend distribution, and more. So back to their largest projects. We're back to iron ore. The Correas mine is the largest iron ore mine in the world. Again, this is Valet, located in the state of Pere, Brazil. It boasts some of the highest-grade iron ore reserves globally, with significant deposits of copper, gold, manganese, and other minerals. There's the S11D Eliezer Batista complex, also in Brazil, and it is one of the most technologically advanced iron ore mining projects. It represents one of the largest investments in the iron ore industry and significantly boosts Valet production capacity with lower operational costs. And maybe why they started with safety, there's also Samarco. Although it faced a tragic dam failure in 2015, Samarco, a joint venture between Valet and BHP, was once a major producer of iron ore pellets. Efforts have been made towards safely restarting operations. And finally, they also have Voises Bay in Canada, located in Newfoundland and Labrador, and is a significant source of nickel, copper, and cobalt. As well, they have coal operations in Mozambique which has one of the world's largest coal reserves. The operation focuses on metallurgical and thermal coal. They have Indonesian nickel operations, and they have the Salabo mine in Brazil, one of the largest copper deposits ever discovered in the country. So what you'll notice across all four companies here is quite an emphasis on iron ore. So what is iron ore used for? I asked our friend ChatGPT. It is the primary raw material used to produce steel, an essential component of infrastructure, construction, and transportation, and manufacturing. So what we see here with, say, these four companies, for example, fairly large prominent mining companies, you know, with their emphasis on iron ore, you start to see them as kind of core to the global economy's development of infrastructure, right? Construction of buildings, steel, transportation, cars, ships, trains. So very interesting there. So those are your earnings. And now let's just take a very quick look on what's going on in the rest of the world. So there's the Red Sea, where, of course, we have seen disruptions. And we do have a couple of little mini updates here. The Chinese are sending their ships in. There is a flotilla that is coming. So one wonders if they are also losing patience with the Houthis there. We'll see what happens there. It doesn't seem to be in a united front with the West. From what I'm gathering, it seems like all these countries are kind of doing their own thing to a certain degree. 
And there is also another major update out of the Red Sea, which is the underwater cables, the internet cables, have been damaged. The Houthis have said that they are going to target the internet cables going through there. And according to this Jerusalem Post article, they have successfully targeted four cables, according to the Jerusalem Post, which are believed to belong to several systems and marks a serious disruption of communications between Europe and Asia. So again, one wonders if even that's part of the reason why China is coming in. So this was just announced in a February 26th story, so yesterday. So moving on from the Red Sea, we also have some developments in Africa where there are hostilities now going on between Rwanda and the eastern side of the Democratic Republic of Congo. So if you break out the map again, you'll see Rwanda is to the east of the DRC. And there is thought to be a lot of resources there. Again, I did a little search on that for us here. You know, resources in the eastern DRC, because I kind of discovered last week that the Copper Belt goes through Zambia, but it kind of goes, you know, through the south and towards the west of the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I did a little search just to see what was there, and it sounds like there's a lot of gold there. Of course, there's cobalt in the DRC. And so when I asked ChatGPT, what are the minerals that are richest in the eastern part of the country? And it is Colton, which I've never heard before. This is a crucial mineral used in the production of electronic devices such as mobile phones and computers. Sounds like a rare earth of sorts, doesn't it? The DRC is one of the largest producers of Colton. There's also cobalt, which of course we know for electric vehicles, there are diamonds and there are substantial gold deposits and there is copper, although the copper is more in the southeastern part of the country. And if you look at the map, you'll see Rwanda is more, quite a small country actually compared to the DRC, but they are more in the middle, you might say, rather than in the south. Uh, They're kind of between the north and the south there, you might say, on the eastern side of the DRC. So it doesn't look like it's kind of directly exposed, you might say, to what's going on in the East. And the DRC is a massive country. Here is the State Department. Matthew Miller, the United States condemns Rwanda's support for the M23 armed group and calls on Rwanda to immediately withdraw all Rwandan Defense Force personnel from the DRC and remove its surface-to-air missile systems, which threatens the lives of civilians, UN, and other regional peacekeepers, humanitarian actors, and commercial flights in the eastern DRC. So Matthew Miller at the State Department, not happy with M23 rebels that are supposedly funded by Rwanda. And again, when you read the news stories about this, it seems like there is an emphasis on the fact that it is rich in mineral resources, interestingly. And just a final kind of point on that. Remember how I was mentioning last week how there's almost this idea that you're the average of the five people you hang out with? And so DRC is starting to kind of boom, it seems like, from a mining perspective. Maybe Zambia is playing catch-up. And it does open the question here, like maybe Rwanda, maybe they want their piece of the pie, right? So just an interesting thought there. Now, finally here, as we move Over to the west side of Africa, it looks like Senegal is still on course for maybe an April election. Of course, President Macky Sall wanted to move it to December. It looks like it may be in April, although I don't see anything official. Apparently, he has to step down April 2nd. So I think that's why people are saying 
April, there was a story about Nigeria, which is battling a currency crisis, just as we kind of wrap up here. Nigeria is facing a currency crisis and soaring inflation of 30%, with a currency hitting an all-time low. So that was on CNBC. Now, we're seeing crypto move quite a bit higher here and quite dramatically. And I'm starting to wonder if there's a connection here because Nigeria always had a little bit of a reputation of being a crypto country. And then I saw this story here in the Financial Times, Nigeria blocks access to crypto exchanges in effort to curb currency slide. So we're seeing Bitcoin, I think it's up again, above $57,000, approaching previous highs with none of the kind of retail hype that we had two and a half years ago. So local consumers given only restricted access to markets like Binance and Coinbase. Scrolling down the story a little bit, so they're trying to restrict access to crypto. And this is quite interesting, about five paragraphs in, crypto exchanges have become important conduits to establish unofficial market prices for the Naira, which is the currency out of Nigeria. The prices quoted on Binance often serve as a benchmark for local foreign currency exchange rates. Isn't that unbelievable? Local traders also use the exchange to trade between the Naira and Tether, the world's largest stablecoin, the value of which is pegged to the US dollar. So we have that currency crisis going on in Nigeria. Then we have the currency crisis going on in Argentina, where Javier Millet, you know, this is a couple of weeks ago in the FT, is trying to curb Argentina's 250% annual inflation. And of course, Argentina is another big crypto country. If you look at digital art, you know, that is bought and sold with crypto, you'll see Argentina and Turkish artists are among the most prominent. And here you look at Turkey, Turkey inflation sees biggest monthly jump since August, near 65% year on year. So we're seeing a huge run up in crypto. And one wonders, are entire countries now, as everybody gets plugged in, one imagines these days, everybody has a phone these days, don't they? Almost everybody. If you have a phone, generally speaking, unless it's illegal in your country, you can buy crypto. And so what if, to wrap us up here, what if the rise in crypto is a result of all these countries that are suffering major inflation problems. I leave that for you to ponder, but just a thought that crossed my mind that I would share here today. So coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Kimberly Darlington, president and founder of Refined Substance, a communications IR agency with an expertise in junior mining. And I was very happy to have Kimberly come on and just discuss how the story of mining is being communicated today in 2024 and it brought up a very interesting discussion on the challenge of reaching young people and the kinds of strategies that are required in order to perhaps begin to communicate the mining story to you know a generation that has very much been turned against mining. A fascinating discussion there with Kimberly Darlington, again, president and founder of Refined Substance, an IR communications agency. And we have a ton of very interesting news stories. We'll start with that Alicia Hyatt story that we just discussed in the Northern Miner and more. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter 
at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, BHP's tech-inspired startup program closes in on first deals with tiny explorers. This is Alicia Hyatt, editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. On the Northern Miner website, BHP is using its giant heft to jumpstart small exploration companies with new ideas on how to find energy transition minerals. The company's BHP Explore six-month accelerator program, now in its second year, gives explorers a $500,000 grant, a chance to learn from BHP experts and peers, and best of all, a chance to partner directly with the $148 billion market cap miner. While no announcements have been made, the world's biggest miner was in talks with some of the six companies that graduated from last year's inaugural program. Charlie Johnson, the head of the program, confirmed in early February. Quote, we are pursuing follow-on investments on multiple cohort members from year one, Johnson said. We're still in the confidentiality period, but yes, the ultimate objective is that each company leaving the program has a more investable project. So we think over the six-month period, their project will mature and advance in a way that will increase the likelihood of further investment that may be from BHP, end quote. BHP Explorer aims to apply the accelerator business model that has been so successful in the technology space to mineral exploration. The inspiration for the program was tech companies like Y Combinator and Techstars, which have funded thousands of startups and launched companies like Airbnb, Instacart, Stripe, Contently and Everledger. And we have another quote from Johnson here, quote, the challenge for financing and the junior market was at an all-time high and continues to be. We thought there was a pretty strong demand, but what we saw really blew our expectations away, end quote, after 250 companies applied. The number of applications doubled this year to over 500, of which six companies were chosen in January. The program's benefits to small companies are obvious, But what does a mining giant that spent $350 million last year on exploration get out of working with the tiniest of exploration companies? Johnson continues, quote, some of them are operating in areas that BHP doesn't have a presence in, which gives us the ability not only to learn about new technical opportunities, but to learn about new jurisdictions. What we learn from the companies is just as much as what they take away from these groups from us. They also teach us quite a bit about being nimble and moving fast. Continuing the quote, we saw applications coming in globally from many different countries, but Australia and Canada were definitely the strongest, end quote. So very interesting here. And here is the final quote from Charlie Johnson. Very interestingly, quote, I think what you're going to see coming out of the strategy reset is a pretty aggressive and exciting approach to what the future of exploration will look like in BHP, and some pretty big aspirations to bring in new opportunities and get to those discoveries, end quote. And that is the promise. And there's something very logical about this program, because, of course, the larger mining companies need these explorers in order to replenish their resources, as I began this program with. So how are they going to do it if the explorers are starving of capital? Where do they find these new discoveries? Their own survival is on the line. So a very interesting, you know, market approach here by BHP. 
Continuing on, feds must force pensions to fund Canadian mining, Lassonde and Justra say. This is by Colin McClellan. So just following up on the Globe and Mail from last week, this is on the Northern Miner. Ottawa has to pressure pension funds to invest billions in Canadian mining, a radical change from their almost non-existent stakes. If the industry is ever going to produce enough metals to fight climate change, veteran entrepreneurs Pierre Lassonde and Frank Juster say Canada's eight largest pension funds hold some $2.1 trillion in assets, but only a quarter was even invested in the country last year. According to research by Montreal-based fund manager Letko Brosseau, the so-called Maple 8 devoted just 3% to domestic equities, the lowest of a group of six countries including the United States, the United Kingdom, and Japan, data show. And here is a quote from Pierre Lassonde, they've taken the vast majority of this money, 75% of it, and invested it outside of Canada to create jobs outside of Canada to the detriment of Canadians. Not pulling any punches here. Essentially, the mining industry has been ignored, end quote. So pretty interesting there. And we have a quote from Frank Justra, quote, we're talking about very large companies, mining giants that we lost to foreigners, end quote, said Justra, who founded Lionsgate Entertainment and helped start Wheaton Precious Metals and Endeavor Mining. Quote, these aren't risky companies. This was the backbone of our mining industry in this country, end quote. So you can read the whole story there on the Northern Miner, but another, you know, Cri du Coeur here from Frank Justra and Pierre Lassonde, this time in an exclusive interview in the Northern Miner. Continuing on, Nickel faces existential moment with half of mines unprofitable. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Many of the world's biggest nickel mines are facing an increasingly bleak future as they wake up to an existential threat, a near limitless supply of low-cost metal from Indonesia. With roughly half of all nickel operations unprofitable at recent prices, the bosses of the largest mining companies last week sounded a warning that there was little prospect of a recovery. The potential of nickel mining from Australia to New Caledonia comes at a time when Western governments are scrambling to secure the supply chains needed to decarbonize the global economy. But in an ironic twist, Indonesia's coal-fired nickel output is pricing out greener metal that so far failed to command a market premium. Wrestling control of strategic metals from China has become a focal point of Joe Biden's administration, yet while U.S. officials have dashed around the world looking to strike deals for materials such as cobalt and copper, the heaviest reverse has come in Chinese-backed Indonesian nickel, a key component of electric vehicles. Indonesia now accounts for more than half of the world's supply, with the potential to reach three-quarters of all production towards the end of the decade. Duncan Wanblad, chief executive officer of Anglo-American after his company took a $500 million write-down on its nickel business last week, said, quote, they don't seem to be letting up anytime soon, end quote. You could argue if they just sold it a little slower, they could make more money on their nickel, right? So it seems to be increasingly clear that this is very much a conscious attempt to take over the nickel market on both Indonesia and China's part. If you feel differently, feel free to leave a comment here. For BHP Group, the world's biggest miner, nickel is a rounding error, contributing mostly losses to profits that routinely break $30 billion a year. Yet in recent years, the company has championed the metal, seeing it as a key growth market that will help offset its retreat from fossil fuels. Instead, it's turned into a disaster. 
This week's CEO, Mike Henry, conceded that the company will have to make a decision on whether to shutter its flagship nickel business in Australia within the next few months. Having already written down the business value by $2.5 billion, Henry said he expects the market to remain in surplus until at least 2030. That means the pain is likely just starting. So more woes in the nickel market, and they don't look like they're going away anytime soon. Interesting follow-up story here. Fortescue's Forest urges LME to separate clean nickel contracts. This is Reuters via mining.com. Again, a story we've been discussing for years, courtesy of Robert Friedland, who was saying one could imagine in the future a point where there's going to be a price for ESG-friendly nickel and non-ESG-friendly nickel, and perhaps here again is a solution to this issue. The London Metal Exchange should classify its nickel contracts into clean and dirty ones to give customers more choices, Australian iron ore magnet Andrew Forrest said on Monday. The comment by Forrest, chairman and founder of Fortescue Metals Group, is part of a push by miners and Australian lawmakers to save the country's nickel industry after prices collapsed amid a jump in cheaper supplies from Indonesia. And here is a quote from Andrew Forrest, who told Australia's National Press Club, quote, If you've got dirty nickel in your battery systems, then you want to know about that because you don't want to propagate that and you want the choice to buy clean nickel if you can. So the London Metal Exchange must differentiate between clean and dirty. In an emailed response to Reuters, an LME spokesman said the exchange, quote, drives and supports the metals and mining industry on several sustainability measures to ensure transparency throughout the supply chain to consumers, end quote. Interesting. The LME, the world's biggest market for industrial metals, has linked up with German online platforms Metals Hub, which in 2022 developed a price index for class one nickel briquette premiums. Briquettes are solid forms of nickel obtained by compressing the metal's powder of flakes. Low carbon nickel can already be listed on Metals Hub today, and the transaction data supports identification of a credible, quote unquote, green premium to the LME price. You wonder if they're concerned, right? Because if the LME starts having more expensive nickel and starts differentiating, probably the concern is, is they're not going to sell as much of the, you know, premium ESG metal losing market share, maybe once again to the Shanghai Metals Exchange there. Also, just a headline here, Rio Tinto gets $13 million from Canada to decarbonize iron ore processing. So this is Reuters via mining.com. So continuing on the clean metal front, and it does seem inevitable, doesn't it? Another interesting story, MP Materials swings to quarterly loss on falling rare earth prices. This is Reuters via mining.com. Rare earth miner MP Materials on Thursday reported a fourth quarter loss due to slipping prices for the strategic minerals and rising production costs, although the loss was not as much as analysts had expected. The company, which held unsuccessful merger talks earlier this year with rival Linus Rare Earths, has struggled in recent months with falling prices and stiff competition from Chinese rivals. Jim Latinsky, the company's CEO and largest shareholder, declined to discuss the merger talks on a conference call with investors, but said, quote, objectively, when you look at any company in a generic sense, there's always things that companies can learn from each other and cut costs around, end quote. MP posted a quarterly net loss of $16 million, compared with a profit of $67 million in the year-ago quarter. That is volatile. For the past four years, MP has processed rock it extracts from its mountain pass mine in California into rare earth concentrate that is shipped to China for refining. So they've reopened Mountain Pass. Of course, Molly Corp tried about 10 years ago and went bankrupt 
Now, MP is starting to have some problems here, again, from Chinese competition. So just relentless. Nevertheless, they produced 150 metric tons of neodymium and presidymium, the two most in-demand rare earths during the quarter, with 10 metric tons sold. MP also said it has finished construction on a rare earths magnet plant in Texas and has begun testing equipment there. So continued to plow ahead there. Few more headlines. Goldman hedge funds step up activity in physical uranium as prices spike. And that was Reuters via mining.com. Another headline here, energy fuels gearing up two more U.S. uranium mines for production. And that is a staff writer at mining.com. And another Reuters story here via mining.com. Burkina Faso suspends export permits for small-scale gold production. So again, they want to process their gold in Burkina Faso. They're building that processing facility with the help of the Russians. And finally here, Swiss January gold exports highest in six years on strong Asian sales. This is Reuters via mining.com with gold exports in Switzerland in January surging to their highest level since December 2016, according to customs data. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market. For context, the U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 4.27%. That is even with last week. The U.K. 10-year gilt is up 0.08% at 4.13%. And the Italy 10-year bond is at 3.9%. That is up 0.04%. So the U.S. 10-year bond staying even while Italy and U.K. 10 years edge higher, but still lower than the U.S. 10-year. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $2,047.70 per ounce. That is $10 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $22.89 per ounce. That is $0.24 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $876.75 per ounce. That is $13 lower than last week, and palladium is trading at $952.61 per ounce. That is $4 higher than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.83 per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. Iron ore is lower at $126.11 per metric ton. That is $3 lower than last week. Aluminum is also lower at $0.99 cents per pound. That is a penny lower than last week. Lead is higher at 96 cents per pound, which is two cents higher than last week. Nickel is also higher at $7.83 per pound. That is 52 cents higher than last week. Tin is lower at $11.97 per pound. That is 26 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is unchanged at $12.95 per pound. Lithium is lower at $13.27 per kilogram. That is 27 cents lower than last week and on par with its low that we've seen here over the last few months at $13.27. Uranium is at $101.95 per pound. That is $2 lower than last week. And zinc is a penny higher at $1.10 per pound. Zooming out, it seems as if each metal has its own story. 
There is nothing too dramatic here anywhere. You know, gold up, silver down. Maybe the biggest interesting move is how silver is back below $23, while gold is slightly higher. Other than that, metals, some higher, some lower. No big drama here. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Kimberly Darlington, president and founder of Refined Substance, a communications IR agency with an expertise in junior mining for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast. And here, Kimberly shares her insights and perspective on how mining companies are crafting their stories in 2024. And really, the huge challenge it is to bring in younger investors who maybe don't want to buy and hold. In a sense, it's the perennial problem of the mining industry these days is a lack of long-term capital. So Kimberly explores the larger narratives surrounding this challenge and maybe the kinds of strategies that can help alleviate the situation. I hope you enjoy the conversation and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, Kimberly Darlington, president and founder of Refined Substance, a communications IR agency with an expertise in junior miners. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Adrian. I'm so thrilled to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. It's great to get all kinds of perspectives from the mining industry on this show. I take pride in having a fairly comprehensive view here by the guests that we bring in. And we haven't had a ton of people on the IR side of things. And I thought with your expertise in junior miners and just dealing with the boots on the ground aspect of dealing with the communications and the challenges of junior mining, I thought you would have a very interesting perspective here for the audience. So tell us a little bit more about what you do first, a little bit of background of what your company does beyond my sort of kind of big picture overview. So Refined Substance was created in 2012 to respond to the need of junior miners in the industry to outsource their communications, investor relations, and public relations initiatives. A lot of these companies, as you probably know, are, you know, there's maybe two or three full-time staff in-house, and the CEOs have to do everything. They have to advance their projects. They have to design exploration programs, and then they also, you know, have to market. So it's nice to have some outside support. We do websites. We do social media campaigns for many of our clients. We help them prepare for conferences. We help with presentations as needed, fact sheets, basically any kind of marketing communications tool that you can think of. And we call ourselves Refined Substance because we take the substance of what these companies are trying to communicate and refine it so that the target markets in the various uh, circumstances can understand what the key messages are. So obviously, when you're talking to investors, it's a little bit of a different way of communicating than speaking to communities or speaking to the public in general or to employees or to the media for that matter. So we take care of all that. We're a team of seven. We're based in Montreal and everything we do, we offer all our services in both English and French. So it's great for companies that have projects in the Quebec market uh, who need to communicate in French as well. We're here for that. It seems right now almost there is a universal sense in Canada for the, you know, explorers, sometimes called junior miners, 
that it's very difficult to raise money right now. You know, we had Ron Birnbaum on a couple of weeks ago just talking about the challenges for Junior Myers. We, it's kind of a song we've been hearing for a couple of years here, surprisingly, as the critical metals take center stage from a policy perspective. So just from what you're seeing then, like I imagine, you know, communication is of paramount importance here for these companies that are, you know, like you say, maybe two people, three people. What kind of challenges are you seeing in this whole process? Uh, how is the business is a kind of another way of framing this? Like, what kind of challenges are you running into? Yeah, it's definitely a very challenging time for juniors. I mean, I, I, I never thought it was easy, but I think there were some golden periods, you know, in the late 90s and whatnot, when things were a little easier. Today, we're sort of facing a number of challenges. One of them is how do we communicate in this modern age? Who are we trying to reach? You know, the investor profile has changed so much over the last 25, 30 years as well. You know, a lot of the older investors who understood the buy penny stocks or buy junior miners at low prices and hold and, you know, be rewarded with a 10 bagger or even more a few years down the road. We have investors now who are a lot younger who grew up on, you know, instant gratification videos that people get bored of watching after 90 seconds kind of thing. And that translates to their investor activity as well. You know, they they go in at a low price and as soon as that's doubled or tripled over a few months, they're going to sell. And so that sort of hampers the company's ability to advance their projects and to raise the kind of money that they need to to see what starts as an exploration project or development project through to construction and production. So it's very, very challenging, particularly in this retail investor world where we're trying to reach retail investors. And so our challenge is always how can we get those messages across? What is the medium that we should be using? What are the best messages to reach the short attention spans, if you will, of younger investors? And particularly when it comes to critical minerals, most of my clients are in the critical minerals development space. And these are minerals that people understand that we need for the future. Like we all need copper if we want to electrify anything with renewable energy. We all need graphite. We all need lithium for electric vehicle batteries. But even with those buzzwords, the young generation gets tired, right? They don't understand the mining industry. They don't understand that it can be, you know, 10 years or more from initial discovery through to an actual mine in operation. So those are my challenges is how to get those messages across and how to particularly reach the younger investor profile that we're now seeing today. Very interesting. And that was where I wanted to go next was how do you decide on demographics in a sense to target? Like in a sense, is it possible that maybe, I don't know, to a certain degree, is it necessarily even worth trying to appeal, let's say, to a younger demographic that maybe there are a few people interested, but maybe, you know, not as many as might make it worthwhile. How do you choose the demographics? Like, How do you target? Like, how do you decide? Mm -hmm. How do you strategize your communication? That's uh, such an interesting question. So we really try and tailor our strategy to each of our clients. As I say, I have a lot of clients working in the critical mineral space, and I have one in particular that is a grassroots lithium exploration company, Brunswick Exploration. And because it's so early stage, they were out there prospecting. They staked Canada's largest land package last summer and sent out a team of prospectors to just look for lithium-bearing spodumene using XRF technology. And so early stage, lithium, which, you know, less so today, but 
last summer was certainly a very hot topic that a lot of young people knew about for electric vehicle batteries and for the um, green energy revolution that we're all working towards. We try to skew younger in our messaging for that company because we figure it's kind of fun. The kids are, I say kids, but they're like, you know, in their 20s, these young geologists are out in the field prospecting. Um, so we try to get footage of that. The kind of, if you will, romance of being in the Canadian wilderness in the summer. I know when I was younger, it was all about tree planting in the summer in the wilderness. But now this is something that we can show younger people who might be working at jobs in the city. You know, some people are out doing this kind of thing. And it's all for the future, right? It's all for our fossil fuel free future that we're all working towards. And, and there's sort of a certain nobility around that as well. So Brunswick, it's a little different from some of our other clients with whom we do a bit more traditional public relations and IR. We're going to actually launch a TikTok uh, campaign later on this year and see how that goes uh, to see if there really is any investor interest out there on those platforms. And traditionally we're on uh, X, Twitter, uh, we're on LinkedIn, obviously, we're on Facebook a lot when it comes to talking to communities, but uh, we'll see how it goes for them. So different vibe there, a little bit of a younger messaging for that company. And for the others, it's a lot of social media, trying to keep things short and snappy, trying to capture that attention if you can early on and get the investor to follow the story. So once you get that outside attention, you know, inviting them to receive our email newsletters and continue to, to keep in touch with us. Very interesting. I was going to ask you that. Do you go on TikTok? And it sounds like you are planning to. Very, That's right. Very, very interesting. And of course, the tone would be so different and everything. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. Now, in terms of the, say, your example, Brunswick Exploration, so they're appealing to investors. There's a dearth of talent, as they say, in the mining industry. Are they also looking for talent? Like, are they simply looking for investors when they start a communications campaign? Or is there kind of a bigger picture? To a certain degree, are they also marketing to the general public, to policymakers? I'm kind of almost back to this. How do you target your message? How do you frame your message? Is it really specific to investors or is it larger than that? Oh, no, I think the important thing to realize is that anyone is an investor, right? You know, if you're working and developing a past producing mine in a small town, as uh, one of our clients, Cisco Metals, is doing in Gas Bay, you know, the, the clerk at the grocery store could be an investor. You know, regulators are always watching what you're doing. And they're so, so important as we try to uh, get the necessary uh, permits and, and uh, authorizations to advance projects. So they're always part of the picture. I think that uh, you have to make your messaging with them as well, because they're also very important audiences and you want them to follow the story and you want them to know what's going on. So again, with our post-COVID, very connected online thing, it's all very short, very snappy messages as much as possible. I feel like, you know, maybe even five, six years ago before COVID, people would sit and watch a 10-minute interview. And I think everyone's now just so screen weary that if you haven't gotten your message across in two or three minutes, you know, they move on. So um, it is very, very challenging. It's kind of a new way of looking at things, a new framework to work in. But uh, I think that there's there's some opportunity there as well to uh, to talk about mining. And to your point about young people and attracting young people to the industry, be they employees or investors or, you know, just people who are, are curious, 
I think that we have to meet them where they are. So if they are on TikTok, if they are on social media, we have to meet them there. And I do think that with, in the case of Brunswick, again, we haven't started the TikTok campaign yet, but we get tons of resumes from people, young people excited about perhaps prospecting for the summer, sending in their resume. So that's encouraging for me because why I do what I do is I want young people to get excited about mining. I think that we have a lot to be proud of in this industry. And I think that it's been given a bad rap uh, in the last few years, particularly with young people. Yeah, it was almost like there was two decades of documentaries that were kind of lambasting, sometimes rightly, you know, sometimes wrongly, the mining industry. And so, yeah, it's had its effect without question. And almost back to this issue you're mentioning earlier on, on the you know, the length of time that people invest in. I mean, do you try and address this challenge? Like, I mean, I guess the junior mining sector, I think it's in a sense, the original crypto was junior mining to a certain degree. If you, you know, when even just to talk about 5X and 10X kind of investments, this isn't really generally until recently, you know, an S&P 500 type conversation. This is more the province of, you know, junior miners, explorers, and and not to, I don't mean this, uh, pejoratively to Rick Rule, but I call it the Rick Ruleization. And I think he'd be okay with it. He seems like a pretty good sport. But I call it the Rick Ruleization of the, you know, mining industry where we kind of have this issue. It's kind of all about the speculative fever mm-hmm. where everybody is out for kind of the quick buck. And, you know, I brought this up actually with CEOs at conferences in Fireside Chats. And most of the response I get is, well, that's the market. You know, that's just how it is. So you know, what are you going to do about it? Uh, How do you see that whole issue of this kind of quick returns when it seems to me that to develop a mining sector, we need long term cash somewhere? Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, you've really hit the nail on the head when it comes to what the key problem is, right? You know, in the 90s, I wasn't in the industry, but what I understand is that there was a lot of the speculation, right? And, and the mining industry, for better or for worse, got a bit of a reputation as, you know, almost like a snake oil type of, you know, you don't know what you're getting, just buy this penny stock and, you know, it may or may not work out and, and you know, but you might make it big. It's almost like a gold rush. So I think those days are long gone. And I think that young people or, or younger investors don't necessarily know that our industry is highly regulated now, thanks to, you know, things like BREEX. And you can't get away with some of the, the stuff that was passing on various exchanges in the past. So there, there's a lot more safety there. So then the trick becomes, how do you choose? Because there are still so many. So what is important to you as an investor? And if you're going to be in it for a long term, like, do you want to see a graphite mine come online in North America? Uh, you know, I think you should if you believe in electric vehicles and this these lofty adoption targets that our governments have set. So if you believe in it, then it becomes easier to invest in it and it becomes easier to stay invested in it. The other thing to consider, I always tell people is, you know, the management team, like, you know, what have they done? You know, if they have a proven track record, because that to me says a lot about where the project may or may not go. One of the things that we do at Refined Substance is we take all kinds of investor inquiries. So whether they come in through Facebook or they come in through email um, or phone calls, we listen to concerns and questions. And these questions are often very uh, rudimentary in terms of reflecting that the investors don't really understand the industry yet. So there is a broader education that needs to happen. And it's not, you know, unfortunately, I don't have the bandwidth to be the person, but the industry as as a whole needs to come together and 
toot its own horn a bit more and talk about how mining has really improved and changed. And like you said, maybe in the past, there's been some things that should not have been done or were not done properly. But I think our industry in Canada is, has actually an obligation now that we have gotten so responsible and so regulated and so careful about building mines and closing mines and reclaiming the land to export that knowledge around the world to other jurisdictions where maybe they're not doing it as responsibly and also to talk about it. Tell people about it, be proud of this industry and get young people excited. You know, whenever I can hire a young person, a student or whatever, I do it because uh, I just I'm so inspired by their energy and their passion for learning more. Beautiful. And where do you see IR going? Like, do you see certain kinds of trends, I guess? And I guess I'd say trends within IR, just in terms of how business is done. Like, I suppose it's more social media now but also trends in terms of content. I assume environment is still front and center. Can you just talk about, you know, some of the trends you're seeing in your business? Yeah, sure. So actually, I started Refined Substance in 2012. It was really just me at my dining room table for, for a lot of years. And it really did just take off during COVID where I was able to hire other employees and take on more clients. But, you know, COVID really, I think, changed a lot of stuff. We're communicating in a much more visual way, whether it's online, via social media, via websites, or even, you know, at events. I think with the demise of COVID, uh, the importance of the face-to-face meeting has returned. Um, there's some nice things that came out of being able to use Zoom. I mean, you and I are speaking right now and we're a continent apart and you can have those kinds of investor meetings without having to get on a plane and go to Europe or whatever. But when you can have an investor meeting in person, I think that connection, again, is so important. And that's partly the opportunity to share visuals, to talk about projects and to have an exchange where people are asking questions live and being answered in the moment as well. So I think that's something that continues to be really important. And then the other thing I've noticed is just after COVID, this sort of newfound interest in what other things are there to invest in. Uh, During COVID, I think people were looking at Bitcoin, people were looking at um, cannabis just briefly before that, when it was legalized, and those things haven't necessarily panned out as they'd hoped. So what's the next big thing? And maybe the next big thing is the old big thing, mining. So hoping that that's the case. In terms of actual topics within mining, I've noticed a bit of a fatigue with ESG. I think people felt like it, you know, it's so important. And now it's like, okay, stop talking about it. We all know it's important. (laughs) So um, I think that's always a challenge. I mean, obviously, the environment is super, super important. There's no project that gets built without social acceptability and governance. It should be a, you know, it shouldn't even be a topic. It should just be part of running any company. So I think those things are becoming part of the um like woven into the material that comprises a company rather than being sort of a, oh, we've got to go out and do ESG. I think it's becoming so largely adopted. So as a topic that investors are interested in, I find it's there's almost like a fatigue there. They just want to move on to, okay, well, what are, what are your resources like? And, you know, finding out the meat and the potatoes of the of the project. I totally can feel what you're saying. And yeah, I mean, we've been talking, in a sense, the mining industry has been talking about ESG before it was cool. You know, yeah. before it became, you know, uh, front page news on CNBC, we had had. Yeah, they conference... used to call it CSR, right? Right. Social responsibility. Exactly. And, you know, I'd long heard of ESG and I'd be talking to people about ESG and nobody would know what I was talking about. But just from the very you know proximity to the mining industry. So I find that super interesting to hear that from you since you're kind of nestled in the communications area. So just a couple more questions quickly here then. 
Kimberly. Just another angle on this, you know, when I sort of started in the mining industry, before I worked for the Northern Miner, I did a few kind of communications things. It was mostly press releases was sort of the thing, right? Where you put out a press release to get attention. How has that changed? Like, is it still the same? Is it now video? Like, uh, how do you get your message out if you're a junior mining company? Uh, well, of course, press releases are a necessary beast, right? You know, your uh, regulators want everything to be press released, and there's still a very effective way to reach out with news. Um, it's certainly with social media and with email e-blasts, you can get that news out to your target audience in addition to via the traditional methods, the news wires and whatnot. So yeah, it's still very important. But I think, again, there's just this fatigue of so much news coming out all the time. And partly that's because you're required to press release so much, right? So people tend to, I wouldn't say tune out, but there's just, it's just they're bombarded with information which is a bigger societal problem. There's just so much information all the time. So how do you stand out from that? That's the challenge, right? And I do think that uh, video is the best way that we have currently available to stand out. If you can support major announcements with some kind of visuals, with some kind of video. Um, I have a, a friend who's not a client, but um, somebody who works in the industry, and he, they do a, a little Teams, like a Microsoft Teams presentation after every press release. So they'll press release it out, and then they'll have a a chat at two hours later at 10 or 11 a.m. And they will go through what the results mean, what to interpret the, the numbers, explain why this is important. And then they'll, of course, record it and then they'll put it on their social media. So I thought that was really smart because if you get a press release, you might not really comprehend what you're looking at. But then if you are interested, you can take the time to have basically almost like a one-on-one -on -one with the CEO where he's going to explain to you step-by-step -step what it all means. Well, it's such an interesting point you bring up. You know, reading is an active activity. Like you need to put effort in to read, whereas video, you can just kind of sit back and it'll happen for you. It's more receptive. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of asking one less thing of your intended audience to do. It's one less step of work, which I imagine is pretty important. So and very fascinating, as you say, of kind of doing this meeting, just turn on the camera and start talking can get you a long way. So as a final question, Kimberly, is there anything that we haven't discussed here that you think we should bring up with this audience here, uh, mining aficionados? Well, I think since we have an audience of mining aficionados and, and insiders, I'm going to ask everyone who's listening to help me with my raison d'etre, why I do what I do, which is to get the word out about mining. Talk to somebody who doesn't know anything about mining. Tell them something about either one of your projects or something that you've heard or something that you've read that is positive, that sort of lifts the veil, if you will, a little bit on what we're doing in mining and why we're doing it and why it's so important. And I got into this when my daughter was a youngster and her, she came home from school one day and said, you know, the teacher said mining is evil. And both my husband, who also works in mining, and I said, what are you talking about? And, you know, the, she explained what the teacher had said, that, you know, it's the earth and, you know, leaves big holes and this and that. And, you know, obviously the connection had not been made that if you like your cell phone, if you like your television, even if you like to eat with stainless steel cutlery, all these things are mined. So that disconnect is probably what drives me all the time to do what I do. And if you're listening out there, Tell someone about mining, make a connection to them about, you know, you, you know, your cell phone takes whatever it is. I think it's 17 different elements that are all mined. So 
I think if we could just all help to increase that awareness, uh, just in our little way, in our own little lives, there'll be an impact. Indeed. Take a bit more of an active approach. I remember just seeing actually Robert Friedland in London in the fall there. And he was saying, you know, you know, miners need to tell their own story, like to your point. Exactly. You know, like people need to stop just letting everybody tell mining story for it, so to speak. Well, Kimberly Darlington, president and founder of Refined Substance. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast and sharing your insights. Adrian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you once again to Refined Substance President and Founder Kimberly Darlington for a fascinating discussion on the stories of mining and how they are communicated out to the larger world and especially to the younger generation and all the challenges surrounding that. And thank you, dear listener. I hope you have a wonderful time if you're going to the PDAC conference there in Toronto. Come stop by the booth, say hi to the crew. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.